Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant and our uh, special, unique three-part Valentine's Day series, What's Love Got to Do With It? from Tina Turner's tw- 1984 song. Uh, we looked at the how the brain loves. I hope you found that interesting. We're going to be looking at kind of the history, the philosophical history of love. Um, What's love got to do with it? I mean, I think this short series could be groundbreaking for love underachieving Christians today. We could change the feel of Christianity if we just got this. Our brains, believers and non, are jonesing for a specific love that comes from God alone. So I'm not speaking of the bumper stickers, God is love, God is love, God is love, and I check a box. It's true, but that's just burdened with such baggage and confusion and just uh, humans speak. I mean, Buddhists would agree with the same statement, God is love, but that's not what we mean. There is a love, a specific, unique, God-sourced love, not human-sourced, that your brain and my brain is is created to Jones for. We're not complete until we experience it. Heaven will experience it all the time. But here, that's what we're talking about. And this love transforms, it heals, it, it adores, it ignites dopamine and oxytocin uh, from, from last uh, week's podcast. It makes you feel attached. It makes you feel attached to the singular God of all the universe. Boy, come on. It makes you feel loved. And that's a trick to, to for our relationship-wounded brains. We need a power for that to be accomplished. It, this love of God, this God-sourced love, makes me love others, particularly those who are unloved and societally unlovable. Now, that's what we're talking about. Oh, my goodness, could we use that today? It, it does not come by you choosing to love. It does not come from you trying harder. It comes from you asking God for his power and then depending upon that to make you begin to feel Jesus's, the height and width and length and depth of Jesus's love for you and others. And that's not how we typically understand this or are taught this. Our expectations are generally very low. And even if they were higher, we're so beat up, abused, broken, used, leveraged relationally that we just can't feel the love of God that Jesus purchased for us. Okay, so more on that. So, Please, I'm begging you, pass this podcast on to someone that you think might need to hear it. If the Holy Spirit brought some unloved or unlovable person to mind, just do it. Or do what I do. Post it on your social media. Do you do Facebook? Put it up there. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok. Go for it. And they will thank you. You might be surprised how many of your friends and colleagues are at the breaking point with loneliness, depression, and maybe their faith in God, particularly on Valentine's Day. All right. All right, before we get into the meat of this, let's pause and get a word from our sponsors. Thank you for your patience. We'll see you in a minute. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 
800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Again, nothing has hurt us more than relationships. Love or lack of love or fear of love, bad love, love that uses us, uh, that leverages us. We Christians are, you know, supposed to be the love experts. People should look at us and our loves and actions and emotions, and we should be identifiable as, as people who look like Jesus. Well, how's that going for us? I think we've just gotten so confused by the topic and it's become word speak and bumper stickers. And frankly, it just, it just becomes boring. You'll see what I mean, particularly uh, when we get to the end of next podcast. But in the first podcast, the last one, we looked at how the brain loves. Well, why is that important? Well, first of all, it's really interesting and even fascinating, not just for nerds and geeks like me, it just really is interesting to see what the brain does. But second, and this is important, this is how God created us. Now, of course, things are broken and fragmented post-fall, but still, the gospel is all about love and our experience of that love, the same love that God felt for Adam and Eve, and they experienced it. And so even now, with our fragmented inner working models, we should begin to experience it a little bit here and there, noticeably so. And That is what our brain was created for and is naturally innately jonesing for, looking for in all the other areas. Everything else is a shadow of that, a reflection of that, a mirror image of that, a lesser image of that. And and by the way, many of our loves are just counterfeit self-medication, just saying. So our understanding of love is also confused by uh, humans trying to grasp what love is all about, trying to explain it. And I love the the irony, uh, trying to explain an emotion, how to think rationally about an irrational emotion. So our confusion started a long time ago. We could go way back, but I want to focus on, we're going to go back before the Victorian age and, and the romantic notions of the Middle Ages. I want to go back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So this is the time frame around the time of Christ or or a couple centuries before, and and that same century of Jesus. This is the love that Paul had to speak into, speak the gospel into on his mission trips uh, throughout the Roman Empire. So let me give you some some, uh, tidbits here. In the 7th century BCE poem, Theogony, Hesiod names Eros, right, love, as one of the first gods to emerge from the primeval chaos, So it gives him priority, right? And describes him as, quote, the fairest of the immortal gods, loosener of the limbs who overcomes the minds of all gods and mortals. All right. So this is one of the lesser gods, but he he is described as in some ways being more powerful than all the gods and particularly mortals. So not even Venus, the goddess of love, can actually resist Eros's power. Eros is more powerful than even the gods. Plato, 4th century BCE, he wrote a bunch of stuff on love. Uh, He has uh, the comic playwright Aristophanes in one of his writings proposed that humans once had bodies made up of what would be two humans, four legs, four arms, two faces looking in opposite directions. 
So Zeus splits these original humans into two as punishment for their hubris. And so human love results from this splitting, this operation, and reflects the desire to find one's other half. (laughs) Uh, So awkward. Lucretius, first century, says, Love is a festering wound in need of a cure. Seneca, Stoic philosopher, also first century, said, Love is friendship gone mad. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans cherished friendship o- over most loves. Galen, uh, this is third century CE, so a little bit later, he says that love is a disease. In one famous case, the doctor and medical writer Galen concluded that a woman suffering from some kind of mysterious ailment had in fact simply fallen in love. <laughs> oh man, that would not go uh, over very well today. And by the way, shouldn't. Neoplatonist Plotinus, 3rd century, true love is the end point of a journey undertaking, undertaken through the perception and contemplation of beauty. All right, um, I want to dig into that and, and highlight what that is saying. It's very important. See, not only did they conclude that love is more powerful than the gods, and in some ways dangerous, we'll talk about that, destructive to peace and uh, family, but it's also a function of the object, this is, this is a huge problem and so ungodly, so unbiblical, so un-Jesus, but we've embraced it subtly. So he's saying that there is a heavenly innate lovability or beauty. And philosophically, there's a higher universal beauty that makes reasonable people love it. Uh, it's, it's a universal beauty that everyone would naturally love. And of course, there's less than that. There's universal ugly and therefore, that doesn't cause, motivate love. You're not, you don't respond to it that way. So work with me. Bad news if you're in a culture and are defined as less than beautiful. Right? If you don't live up to the ideal, you shouldn't even expect to be loved. That's, that's part of the Roman heritage that we've inherited. You know, it's, just, it's just too bad. What you need to do is you need to become beautiful, whatever that might be in your culture. You need to grow taller, grow shorter, uh, grow longer hair, take all your hair off, put on weight, lose weight, whatever it might be, right? Uh, so that you could become an object of love. It's a brain thing. So I'm going to come back to that more when we speak about Ovid and particularly Pygmalion. So hold on to the thought. But we've largely inherited this. It's sort of oozed into our thinking. And thank God that's not what his love is about. So for the early Stoics, they, they had four classifications of effect, desire, uh, so epithumia, which is a gotta have now, desire, there's fear, pleasure, and pain. So the ideal person, the virtus, should be, should choose to rationally be unaffected by affect. So again, the ideal person is, think Mr. Spock on Star Trek, right? Unaffected by love, they're in control because being out of control is a weakness and makes you less of an ideal person. And my guess is that no one actually achieves such a high bar. Cicero, now we're kind of at the time of Jesus. He died in uh, 43 BC, so just a little bit before. He held a more nuanced view. He says that a wise person can feel love you can kind of cautionary, but still be freed from disquietude, from longing, from anxiety, and from sighing, he says. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. But he thought that this pure love was theoretical and, and uh, just quite rare. So theoretically, there is a controlled love, but he doesn't know anybody who did it. Um, 
Arius Didymus, a Greek philosopher in Alexandria, a mentor of the Emperor Augustus, again, time of Jesus, um, he said the highest goal of true eros, fascinating, so he has this spectrum, I'm going to talk about it, eros was, the, the highest goal of eros was to form friendship with another. because So friendship, phileo, in the Roman mind was a high love, very high love much higher than Eros. It's funny how things change. So in Arius's perception, Eros was on a spectrum. At one end, there's a enjoyment of beauty that leads to companionship, a phileo. And that's very high. That's a high love. At the other end of the spectrum, the Eros spectrum, is what he calls a madness. And it destroys companionship and, and leads to fighting and uh, dissolving relationships. That has to be controlled by your by your uh, reason. So it seems that the Stoics understood eros to be negative and positive, selfless or selfish. I actually like that. We're going to come back to that in a little while. So Ovid, famous Roman writer, contemporary of Jesus, he thought, he believed love was, you know, he wrote a lot about it because it's a transforming power. It's dangerous. Uh, He likes Cupid as the personification of that love in, in the Roman deities. In one tale, Apollo, the god of reason, uh, he's making fun of Cupid, Cupid for his bow, and Cupid shoots Apollo with a golden arrow. And Daphne, a river nymph, uh, he shoots with a lead arrow, and it he's causing Apollo. He makes Apollo, the god of reason, fall in love with the nymph. I mean, you can see the power of love. And uh, he made the nymph reject him using the lead arrow. Are you following? So Apollo's pursuing Daphne. He's about to catch her when she prays to her father, the river god, who transforms her into a laurel tree, and Apollo is frustrated. <laughs> so you, you get the message. The moral is the god of reason, and, and even Aphrodite, uh, who's in other tales, the goddess of love, they can't do anything to prevent this power of love, this disruptive this quieting power of love. So look, if the gods can't even do it, what what do what do men what, what can hum, humans say? So the emperor Augustus bought that, and so when he was emperor, he tried to legislate against love. He tried to put it in a box against the power of love because it was a disturbance that potentially would threaten the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It has to be controlled. So men And in particular, uh, Romans were a very patriarchal, misogynistic bunch, okay? So men, they were allowed to have sex outside of marriage, uh, particularly slaves, prostitutes, mistresses, and even it was encouraged for young boys who were only in their uh, tweens and teens. Now, today we would call that statutory rape. Uh, Very, very sad. But the idea is they wanted to help men control their sex urges, the, the maddening eros by spending it outside of the home because the home and the peace of the home has to be protected. So marriage wasn't designed for sex, for eros, to, to, to bleed off that urge. It was for family and stability. Now, again, patriarchal wives are, are just supposed to stay at home, remain pure and be faithful. Um, and, and it was controlled. There were laws. Men were not to have sex with someone else's wife or daughters, but they could have sex with slaves and sons. All that was kosher. 
The idea was to disempower the erotic sex drive because uh, Ovid and Augustus and so many others believe that it just they just couldn't be controlled. So on paper, the goal is friendship and, and companionship that a husband would have for a wife or, or friends would have. You don't marry for love, eros. You marry for the peace and stability and companionship. Love is just too dangerous to put on the block there. You, you can't just date for eros. All right. I think this might be a good place. We're going to dig into the Pygmalion story, but this might be a good place to take a break uh, and uh, hear from our sponsors. Uh, look, the Pygmalion story, we've unfortunately bought the moral of that hook, line, and sinker, and that's too bad. We're going to try to bust that today. All right. See you in a minute. One of the most enduring romance formulas is found in Ovid's Pygmalion. Pygmalion was a sculptor who was so skilled in his art that he was able to create images of women that were so ideal that no woman could achieve their beauty. He hit the ideal. And remember, they they held that love is a function of the object. So if the object is perfectly beautiful, nobody could not fall in love with it. And one such statue of uh, Pygmalion, he named Galatea. It was so perfect that Pygmalion fell in deeply in love with this, this, this rock. And he showered it with gifts, treated it as if it were alive because he couldn't help it. Humans, uh, the Romans believed, are suckers for true beauty, whatever that means, right? Even though we know that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's culturally specific in so many ways. Nevertheless, in the, in the beauty of storytelling, Pygmalion just couldn't help himself. It's a brain thing. And during a visit to the temple of Aphrodite, the love goddess, he prays that the goddess would bring him a woman that was identical to Galatea. Well, Aphrodite was so moved by his request that she magically brought his Galatea to life. And once Galatea was flesh, Pygmalion and she were married, and they, of course, lived happily ever after. (laughs) Uh, Okay, it's a good story. And in typical Pygmalion formula, there's usually a subject who is ready to love, that's Pygmalion. Then there's a tragic object who is at first unlovable or uh, unloved, right? So they might be a a piece of rock. Um, So they're unloved, actually, or experientially. And and so there must be a removal of some stigma from the unloved objects um, before it gets in the way of the romance. And it's that stigma that makes the object unlovable by the hero. But as the Pygmalion formula, formula proceeds, the object is, you know, transformed. Um, the beauty is uncovered, the stigma removed, um, things like that. And then when that happens, of course, the hero is going to fall in love with this renewed object, this beautiful object. They can't help it. And we all get that as kind of comfort food for the audience. And it leads to that expected consolation line, and they all lived happily ever after. Look, it's everywhere in Western pop culture. I mean, the, the biggest examples would be My Fair Lady, uh, Overboard, Pretty Woman. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's just so many. Uh, pick, pick a rom-com, right? Um, and you may be too young for this, but there was a uh, an ABC Network smash hit back uh, in the uh, early 2000s called Extreme Makeover. Oh my goodness, I don't think we could do it. It was 55 episodes. And what they would do is they would bring in culturally unattractive people who identified themselves that way. 
and they were transformed into beautiful people through advanced medical procedures, wardrobe, makeup consultation. Um, it's called Extreme Makeover. Check it out. And then the testimonies of the participants were that they had been living subhuman lives because they weren't attractive, too tall, too busty, too fat, bad teeth, bad hair, bad noses, whatever it might be. And the show's website describes its Pygmalion power. Here's a quote. The magic is conjured through the skills of an extreme team, including the nation's top plastic surgeons, eye surgeons, cosmetic dentists, along with a talented team of hair and makeup artists, stylists, and personal trainers led by an on-camera extreme makeover expert. And then when they were quote-unquote fixed, uh, the people who knew them just were stunned at their beauty and loved them more. And that's the idea. So here's the Pygmalion formula that snuck into our concept of love. Love is conditional. It is actually focused on the object's lovability, their beauty, right? And, and second, there exists a power that can make unlovable objects lovable. Maybe it's their personal choice. Maybe it's a, a magic. Maybe it's uh, the, the role of story uncovering some truths, whatever it might be. There's a power that makes unlovable objects lovable. And ultimately, any object can be made worthy of love. That's the Pygmalion formula. And and that's how the Romans imagined love in so many ways. And same today in our rom-coms. It's a dangerous, stabilizing, destabilizing power, greater in power than mortals and gods alike. It's the love of God that transforms, Right. It upsets people, families, and society. It can cause wars, among other things. Love's affections are to be controlled and legislated and uh, and, and particularly religiously uh, legislated. It's, it's a function of the object. It's not a function of the subject. It's a function of the object. It's only for those lovable people. And in rom-coms, the protagonist must come to see the hidden beauty in the and the, and the co-star, uh, he or she is attractive when you take the glasses off or let their hair down or the person gets confidence, makeup, works out some of the, of the weight, and then it just makes sense to the audience that the hero will fall in love with them. Only then. Um, there we go. Well, Paul, on his missionary journeys to the Roman Empire, is going to have to speak into this love that's a function of the object. And he agrees we should control our urges. But the way we are to do it is not by going to prostitutes or sleeping with young men or mistresses. It's the power of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us access to God's source love for ourselves and others. That's not dangerous or destabilizing. Well, in a way, it's dangerous. It's certainly transforming. It's loving and honoring of others over self. So if you have this new power that's honoring others, why would you dishonor them by using them to satisfy your hunger? Are you with me? It's a competitor for that maddening eros, that, that extreme uh, of the spectrum. So it's, it is in that Roman abysmal failure to control the madness that Paul writes in his very first epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. Listen, and then I'll try to unpack it. This is what he says, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 9. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Separate yourself from sexual immorality. And the word is porneia there. 
Each of you should gain mastery over your genital organs in a way that is sanctifying and honorable, not driven by lustful passions, epithumia pathos, uh, like the unbeliever who does not know God. So I'm going to come back to it, but it has to do with your relationship with God that you are able to do this. The unbelievers don't have that. So in this matter, Paul continues, one should not go beyond proper limits of true love by using his brother or sister for their own satisfaction because the Lord will bring justice for all these things as we've already told you and bore witness to. Four, God did not call us to be in a state of moral corruption, rather to be sanctified. Therefore, and sanctified, this is this is righteous to be holy. This is to look at other people and want to honor them, not to dishonor them for your purpose. So you're a, you're a person there who's reflecting God, uh, going to unlovable people and loving them. Back to Paul. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, and that would include legislation of man, but God, who is giving you his spirit. See, that's the point. The controller, the carburetor, the the, the competing power is, is from the Holy Spirit. Now concerning sisterly and brotherly love, you have no need for us to write to you, for you yourself are being taught by God to love one another. It comes from God. Uh, We're being equipped and taught by God how to do this because we didn't know how to do it before. There was no way for us to separate ourselves from sexual immorality. It was too powerful before the Spirit came. So let me unpack. God's ideal of love is what we're all called to, and it's loving one another, not using others to satisfy my brain's longing, my urging, lusting for pornea. And let me define pornea as this love that that um, it's a desire, it's a drive, an urging um, to use others to quench your thirst, very selfish. So you're going to use others, you're going to leverage them to satisfy your your urges, your lust. It's self-focused, self-oriented. Are you with me? Pornea. Everything within that envelope, within that bubble, that's pornea. Um, Instead, Paul says that one should not go beyond proper limits of true love by using his brother or sister for their own satisfaction. I mean, it's very clear. Instead, this God love, God source love, we are to long for others to feel honored, loved, and satisfied in relationship. We want them to be satisfied this new God love. Specifically, it's other-focused. God's love is never pornea. God's love is not to satisfy his longing and urges. It just isn't. It's to rescue, love, and adore unlovable others to make us satisfied. It's the pinnacle of loving others. And Ovid just doesn't seem to have such an other-oriented concept. It's just not, he just doesn't see it. And Paul agrees with Ovid and the Stoics that pornea and this epithumia pathos are destructive and selfish, this using a brother and sister for your own satisfaction, and it should be individually managed. You know, you gain mastery over your genital organs, he says, that, that is on, in a way that's honorable. But Paul disagrees that it can be done by your choice or by legislation. Paul understands love, phileo, verse 9, and agape, verse 9. It requires the spirit and specific guidance, empowerment, teaching from God. Well, how do we do that? Paul, again, God is giving you his spirit in order for that to be accomplished. Instead of you just working hard to not desire, good luck. Lusting after others, good luck. Wanting to use others and sex and relationship for your hit of dopamine. 
you can access by asking for the power of God through the Holy Spirit in your inner being, Ephesians 3, in order that you would have the love of God toward that person, a selfless love towards that person through the Spirit in your inner being. On your own, you can't and you won't. But the Spirit does this by nature. God's love is is not just godly, meaning we just try to, to be like Jesus. No, it's actually God-sourced today. And that's just really good news. So look, if you've gotten beaten up by love, if you have beaten people up by love, if you have used people, you've used porn, which is images of people, look, you don't have to rely on your capacity, your broken, fragmented capacity to get fixed or to just to stop it. Uh, to control your epithumia pathos. Uh, but you do have the capacity to ask, a child could, and that's step number one. Remember Ephesians 3? It's a great verse to keep going back to. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being. And you're you're competing with a power of Epithumia pathos of porneia, very, very powerful, and it's in your midbrain. So you need the creator of the brain to give you something that's going to start unwinding that, unraveling that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp, to cling on to, to just barely hold on to, and experience how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge of your PFC is going, your prefrontal cortex is going, what is happening? So that you can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, his power that is at work within us, not our power that is at work for him. It's his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. See, Paul seems to know what we're speaking about in, in different words. He senses that the Ephesians, like him, like me, are ultimately jonesing for a love that loves us as we are, not as we should be, not based upon our beauty, uh, what we do, what's been done to us. It's not like the Romans imagined. It's not a function of my uh, worth or righteousness or strength or wisdom or beauty or, or whatever else. It's a love that is not a function of the object. It's a function of the subject, God. Thank God. And look, why? Because only God is ultimately beautiful. Only God is in a place where when people rationally, reasonably see him, we feel love towards him, except for Satan. Um, we're not that beautiful. We're <laughs> handsome. We're broken reflections, right? Makes sense? Um. Yeah, so real quickly, so the Pygmalion focus in, in Christianity, there's this notion that God would love me more if I was more righteous. Do you hear the Pygmalion formula? God would love me more if I was more faithful, if I was took care of myself, it had showed more discipline and gluttony and, and, and tithing, whatever it might be. I had less struggles with lust and pornography and adultery, and, and I loved people more, whatever that means. Um, and then then God would be drawn to me. But do you see, that's, that's Roman theology. That's not, that's not Christianity. Um, this love that Paul speaks about to Romans in the first century who are afraid of love, this love is a function of the subject. 
Strictly because of what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago on behalf of all of his children, God loves us as much as the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit love the Father. He can't love us any more or any less. We can't add to it or take away from it. We can't screw it up. This is true for you, Christian, no matter if you are beautiful enough, according to any any definition, whatever that might mean, smart enough, righteous enough, this or that skin color, this or that sex, or this or that country of origin, whether you have been a horrible sinner in your life or today or yesterday, it innately loves sinners. It innately loves the unworthy, the unlovable, the hard to deal with, the hard to look at, the broken, the people who break. This love is very dangerous. The Romans got that right in that it loves the unworthy, and so it changes the culture. It competes with this Roman culture, this ancient Roman view of love. Um, And it actually begins to create the beauty because the person begins to look a little bit like Jesus by their actions, by their motivations. It can transform society from within, from within. The Romans wanted to transform society by legislation so that the people would change. The gospel does just the opposite. It's dangerous to the status quo particularly for those who are at the, the top of the food chain, the beautiful, the powerful, the wealthy, the, the, the majority race, whatever it might be. And, and, and that status quo is tainted by the Roman philosophy to one degree or another. So how do you get this love? It's good. Well, if you're a Christian, you already have it. So here's a better question. How, does, how do you experience it more? Right? That's the right question. Paul models this by asking God to give you his power. That's Ephesians 3. God's power, that's noticeable. It should be noticeable. Otherwise, Christianity is pretty boring. Through his spirit and your inner being and his power designed to, to make you begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of love of Christ for you. Remember, you felt it once when you were saved. How about feeling it again? Right now, today, and tomorrow. And by the way, it makes you feel the love of Christ for others. Remember the unlovable others? That's what your creator knows he created you for, and he knows you desperately want and need more of. It loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be, and not if you're ever enough, whatever that means. It's crazy love. In the next podcast, we're going to dig into what that looks like and feels like. The Romans were frightened of this love, uh, and, and at least the love that Paul defines as porneia. But what is it? So it's not porneia. Is it agape? Is it eros? Is it phileo? Is it something else? Is it all of the above? I think you'll be surprised. Um, we're going to dig in that more. Ask the question in the first podcast. I mean, Eros, we so talk, we modern Christians influenced by the ancient Romans, we talk about it all the time, just like the Romans did. But in the Greek New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old, Old Testament, do you know how many times Eros is actually used? Twice. That's right. And only twice in the Old Testament. We'll talk about those places in the next podcast. And, and you're, you'll be surprised. It's not what you think. We'll dig into that more. Here's Brendan Manning. Religion is not a matter of learning how to think about God, but of actually encountering him. Losing our illusions is painful because illusions are the stuff we live by. The Spirit of God is the great unmasker of illusions, the great destroyer of icons and idols. God's love for us is so great that he does not permit us to harbor false images, no matter how attached we are to them. God strips those falsehoods from us no matter how naked it may make us because it is better to live naked in truth than clothed in fantasy. I love that. 
Still, there is a chronic temptation to reduce God, and by the way, his love, to human dimensions, to express him in a manageable idea. Human reason seeks to understand, to reduce everything to its own terms. But God is God. He is more than a superhuman being with intellect keener than ours and a capacity for loving greater than ours. He is unique, uncreated, infinite, totally other than we are. He surpasses and transcends all human concepts, considerations, and expectations. He is beyond anything we can intellectualize or imagine. That is why God is a scandal to men and women, because he cannot be comprehended by a finite mind. Jesus calls us to stretch our mind and hearts to renounce human standards of justice, mercy, love, rectitude, and fair play. For a disciple of Jesus, the process of spiritual growth is a gradual repudiation of the unreal image of God and an increasing openness to the true and living God. Wow. So we just banter this word love around, but honestly, I think a lot of times we think we're talking about the ancient Roman version and we're confusing it with this whole concept of human love post-fall. Well, in the next podcast, we'll do a deep dive into what the love of God really is all about. I think it's going to be amazing. Uh, Okay, so I need to end. In the last podcast, I suggested a couple of songs to drive this stuff home. Here we go. First song, same as last time, Gyra. Play it again, long play over and over and over. And then I would recommend Reckless Love. Listen to these words. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh my goodness. So look, it's not that God's reckless. It's his love. We look at it and go, that's just confounding this love that's not a function of the object. It's a function of the subject. It's crazy talk. All right. We'll see you in the next podcast. Happy Valentine's. Take heart, child of God. Hey, everybody. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And we're hosts of the Kynos Project podcast where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. The word kainos means new, and that's exactly what we want to do on our podcast. Bring something new from what is old in our faith. And on this show, you might hear us explore topics like what the Bible has to say about student loan forgiveness, discuss how the satanic temple affects our view of religious liberty in America, or even question why is it that so many people are having rapture anxiety. To learn more about the podcast, go to lifeaudio.com.